0: I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 1, and we'll read verses 4 through 8 of chapter 1, and then verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. The Word of our Lord, here in Acts 1 and 2. Being assembled with His disciples, Jesus commanded them, Do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father which you heard from Me. For John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore they together asked Him, Lord, is it now time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not yours to know times or seasons which the Father has kept in his own authority, but you will, re- will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in both Jerusalem and in all Judea, indeed Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. On the day when Pentecost was to be completed, they were all with one accord together. Suddenly, a sound came out of heaven. As a violent rushing wind, filling the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire being distributed, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word to our hearts and to our lives. And Almighty God, on this day you open the way to eternal life to every race and nation by the promised gift of your Holy Spirit. Shed abroad this gift throughout the world by the preaching of the gospel that it may reach to the ends of the earth we pray all of this through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit one God forever and ever Amen I'm going to ask a question but I want to urge you and encourage you do not answer it out loud That question is, why did Jesus die on the cross? Again, no vocalized answers. Why did Jesus die on the cross? If your answer is something related to so that I can get to heaven when I die, I'm sorry to tell you, but your answer is wrong. Jesus died on the cross so that heaven can get into your heart. Amen. Jesus died on the cross so that a holy God could live in you. Not just so that you will spend timeless eternity with Him, but so that He could come into your life and live with you now, today. Heaven is icing on the cake. Heaven is the unexpected bonus. the matter of Jesus becoming one of us and living a life like one of ours and dying on a cross for us and rising again from the dead was so that a holy God could live in a human heart. That's what Pentecost is about. The purpose of the cross is to complete redemption. And Pentecost is kind of the pinnacle of redemption. If you think of a roller coaster, I remember the first time I rode a roller coaster, it was with Bill. And I had no earthly idea what I was getting myself into. It was probably one of the worst choices of a roller coaster for a first ride. But we wrote it, nonetheless. And if you think of a roller coaster, you've got a lot of ups and downs, you've got a lot of movements, you've got a lot of turns. Uh, if you're on a wooden roller coaster like ours, things seem a bit uneasy, and things seem a little bit messy, so to speak. And if you think of the story of redemption, you you see many ups and downs, many turns, a lot of ricketiness, a lot of messiness. In thinking of the liturgical calendar of the church, you know, we begin with Advent, preparing ourselves for Christmas. We're not like the world where we celebrate the giving of gifts at the end, we celebrate the gift from heaven to us to start our year. And Christ comes down from heaven, and his life is lived here on earth. He makes himself small tiny he makes himself vulnerable he is born and he lives a really an untold life we know very little about the details of his life other than those last three years of ministry And in the cross, we reach on that Good Friday a very, very low point when we hear our voices screaming for Him to be crucified. But just before the cross, we hit a high point, Good Friday, and we hear our voices crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we celebrate that small high point just before the cross. We dip down into the cross. And beyond the cross, we dip down into despair. Our Lord is dead. And He's buried in a grave. We think very, very little of that Holy Saturday when Jesus was in the bowels of the earth. On Easter Sunday, He comes shooting up out of the ground. And not only does He come shooting up out of the ground, that's a high point in and of itself, but that high point continues to build. It continues to grow. He spends 40 days with His disciples, teaching them. And then He ascends to the Father's right hand. Another High point. The high point is just building and building and building. And he tells his disciples right before the ascension, You wait. Terry in Jerusalem. Do not go anywhere. Kind of, I'll be right back. And they're waiting on this high point. Now imagine it. You're on the roller coaster. After all the turns and all the twists and all the dips and rises, you're rising and rising and rising and rising and it seems like, oh my goodness, this thing can't get any higher. And then what happens on Pentecost is it, it, it's almost as though the bottom just falls out. And things get a bit messy. The Holy Spirit is Plunging to earth. The roller coaster, having reached its highest peak, is dropping all of a sudden. And all of God's intentions for humanity, all of what God has longed for the human heart, comes rushing downward to the ground of the earth. Redemption is messy. It's um. That's a topic that we talk about on Thursday nights a good bit with the uh, the young adults. There's a lot of precariousness in life, and there's a lot of precariousness in redemption. I mean, you just think of the fact that God became a man, a baby, a real baby. We've got we've got some folks in our uh, congregation who who care for moms who are expecting babies and are caring for babies after they're born and before they're born. And having a baby is no simple matter. And there are no guarantees at all. And to think that God the Son became an embryo, was placed into a human family, Redemption is messy business. This, uh, the reason why that thought is on my mind is earlier in the week, Lindsay and I were talking about the fact that Pentecost was coming up, and she said, uh, "She said Pentecost is messy. I mean, it, you read the story of that first Pentecost, and it's weird. We don't know what to make of it. We don't know what to do with it. All we know to say is praise the Lord. But you've got." Not just the, the disciples. Oddly enough, the 11 faithful disciples are together. The Scriptures tell us Judas went out and hung himself. That he spilled his bowels on the earth when hanging himself. That's Scripture speaking. More messy business. And that the disciples, as they're gathering for prayer, they think, well, we've, Jesus picked 12 of us. There are only 11 of us now. What, are, what do we do? And so they kind of interviewed, there's a a whole group of people together in the upper room, which is probably a rooftop, and they narrow it down to a couple of really good choices. These would probably be some good selections. God would probably be pleased with either of these. How do we figure it out? So they rolled dice. They pulled straws. Now, if that's not weird, and if that doesn't kind of challenge your perception of the sovereignty of God, then um, you miss that they rolled dice to figure out who's going to be the twelfth disciple. After all, I mean their pick can't be any worse than Jesus. He picked a tax collector and you know all sorts of cheats. And... So they're gathered together ten days after the ascension, he told them, do not go anywhere. I'll be back. Uno momentum. And they're gathering together, 120 some odd folks. They're praying. Pentecost, the final day of that Old Testament season of festivities, comes and They're praying, and all of a sudden, the wind doesn't just start to blow, it starts sounding violent, like a rushing, violent, and mighty wind. And the whole place is filled with this wind. Now imagine yourself there. Everything suddenly is perhaps getting dark, and it's windy, and it doesn't look good. Perhaps you close your eyes. Maybe it'll go away. You can feel it. You can hear it. And you open your eyes to see flames everywhere. That's wild. And not only that, you begin speaking in a language you've not studied. And your friend beside you is speaking in a language he hasn't studied. In fact, you probably think, I didn't realize he had the mental capacity to learn other languages. It's weird. It's very odd. It's messy. The Scriptures tell us that a thousand people are added to the church. And thousands upon thousands in the coming days. Throughout the Scriptures, we have 550 some odd references to the Spirit. In the Old Testament, there's about 200 references. And it's the Hebrew word ruach, which means breath, wind, or fire. In the New Testament, it's 350 or more. Numa. The Spirit is spoken of in relationship to creation. In the book of Genesis, the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. The Spirit is the promise of the Prophets. There's something fundamentally wrong and flawed with the heart of man. And so God promises to send His Spirit to give us a new heart. All throughout the Gospel records and here in the book of Acts, you find Jesus speaking of the Spirit who is to come. In fact, the last night that He spent with His disciples, He told them, I'm going away, but I will come again. He says, I'm going, and I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In fact, I'm going to the Father, and I will pray to the Father, and He and I will come to you as we send the Spirit to you. The epistles of the New Testament are about how to live a life that has been redeemed. And that life is is always spoken of as a life lived to God in Christ through the enabling power of God's Spirit. We hear the word Pentecost and we think, what does that mean? It's a Greek word meaning 50th day. It's 50 days after Easter. Pentecost was a, it's a Greek term to... to Speak of a festival in the Old Testament. It was called the Festival of Weeks. And it was a period of time, kind of like a harvest festival, where Israel would celebrate the fact that God had yet again provided for his people. He had yet again met their needs. And so they would bring their first fruits to him. For he was faithful and he provided. Jesus spoke of the Spirit and the coming of the Spirit as the promise of His Father. Church historians see Pentecost as a birthday, so to speak, of the church. For it's in that day and in that moment that the Spirit comes, that the church is birthed out into the world to bring redemption. The British call it Wit Sunday, because they apparently can't say White Sunday. It's a day where we celebrate kind of like the Old Testament people. Now, no, we don't celebrate for weeks and weeks on end with festivities, but we're celebrating much the same that the Old Testament people celebrated in this festival of weeks. God has provided. He has provided not just crops. He has provided what is needed for the human heart. He has met our need. There are symbols that are used in the celebration of Pentecost. I'm wearing a red shirt because red is typically associated with Pentecost. If you go into the children's church room, you'll find red streamers hanging everywhere, representing tongues of fire descending on our children. Gold is another color that's often associated with Pentecost. Purity, royalty. In the scriptures, the spirit is spoken of as a dove, a sign of peace. Oftentimes, you'll find a an olive branch in that dove's mouth. But there are three fundamental images used of God's Spirit throughout the Scriptures, that of breath, water, and fire. And as we think of Pentecost as being the fulfillment of God's promise to His people, and as the fulfillment of His provision for His people, I want to look at what God does provide for us in the coming of the Holy Spirit The first is simple. He provides for us a new birth. He breathes His breath upon us and in us. You remember that Jesus, um, after the resurrection, on that resurrection Sunday evening as He appeared to His disciples, He breathed on them and He told them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the creation of Adam? How God formed Him from the Dirt of the ground. And he breathed into him the breath of life. He breathes new life into us. He gives us new birth. Paul, in speaking to the Romans... Said essentially, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ living in you, then you do not have Christ living in you. To have Christ is to have the Spirit. And to have the Spirit is to have Christ. And what Jesus told his disciples on that Maundy Thursday, the night he was betrayed, was that he and the Father would come to live in their hearts through His Spirit to give new life and a new birth. He breathes into us this new birth. He offers to us also a pure heart. The promise of Ezekiel, some of which David read for us this morning, is that Our heart is broken and dirty and cold and lifeless, but He wants to give us a new heart. A heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. And one of the images that Ezekiel the prophet uses in that passage is that He will sprinkle us with clean water and He will wash us and make us clean and holy. We speak of sanctification, and too often we think of that as some high-flown theological term But it's simply the way in which God makes us holy. He cleans us up. He offers to us not just a fresh start, He offers to us a pure heart, a heart that has one motive to love God and others with every ounce of our being. And if we're resting simply on, we've got a new life and a new start and a clean slate, and we don't look to our hearts, and the need of our hearts to be cleansed, and our hearts to be turned toward others, then we have fallen short of the fullness of what God offers us. Because He offers us not just a new birth through His Spirit, He offers us a pure heart. And that's for not the spiritually elite, that's not for pastors, that's not for lay leaders, that's not for you know heads of Christian organizations or denominations, that is for all who have the Spirit living within them. He comes to take up residence and He comes to clean house. God sees and knows our need and He meets it. He is faithful. He offers to us a holy love. You know, we think of holiness as some form of raw power. In fact, Jesus spoke of being endued with power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us. But we think too often like the disciples think, oh good, so you're going to give the kingdom back to Israel now. You're going to give back to us our political and geographic influence. Right, Jesus? He basically tells them, mind your own business and that's not your business. We think, hey, we give our hearts to Jesus and everything's put back right and we're going to be movers and shakers. We're going to be people who can influence others. In fact, that's the content of a lot of books on the Christian bookstore shelves is how to be a better influencer. How to have more power. But the power that... God offers us through His Spirit is not some raw power that we can wield for our own ends. It is the power to live a life of love, of holy love. There is no holiness in Scripture apart from love, and there is no call for us to love except for as God, the Holy One, loves And God offers us fire to burn up the impurities of our love. Imogene and I were talking before the service about Pentecost and we were talking about the wind and suddenly the fire and the fear we might have felt. And she wondered, how are they not burned up? I said, well, it's the same way that the burning bush wasn't burned up. God sends His fire not to scare us and not to harm us. God sends His fire to cleanse us and to purify us. And we spoke about how gold is refined in fire. It's melted down and its impurities rise to the top And the goldsmith is able to scoop those impurities off. And much in the same way, God wants to burn up our lives, not to destroy us, but to refine us, to purify us, to make us holy in love. Enabling us to walk in His ways, we speak of holiness of heart and life. And really what we mean is that holiness is not just some internal thing. It's just as much external as it is internal. God comes into our hearts so that He can live through our lives. So that our behaviors, so that our relationships, so that the way we interact with others, and that's the interesting thing, is holiness In the Old Testament we think of it as being legalism and it's not, Uh, but holiness in the Old Testament is always spoken of in relationship to how we treat other people. (laughs) How we treat family, how we treat friends, how we treat neighbors, how we treat people with whom we do business. That's what God means when He says you be holy. It's not you sit in a closet and keep yourselves from others it's you interact with people in love Jesus in speaking to his disciples about love in the Sermon on the Mount he said you've heard the wisdom of the world love your neighbor and hate your enemy." Now that hate your enemy part's nowhere found in the, in the Old Testament. We think he's quoting the Old Testament. He's not. Love your neighbor is quoting the Old Testament. Hate your enemy has nothing to do with the Old Testament. That's the wisdom of the world. You do to others what they've done to you. Jesus said that is not to be so. Love your enemies. Pray for those who curse you. Bless those who use you. Then he said, I'm not asking you to do much. I'm simply telling you to be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. This life lived in holy love is what the Spirit enables for us as people who say that Jesus lives in us. If you're um, taking notes, if you're the note tape, Taking type. This next thought is not a—it's uh, not a fourth point. It's kind of a um, summation of the holy thing, of the whole thing, the holy thing. Hey, that'll work. Back where we started. Why did Jesus die upon the cross? So that the presence of a holy God could be ours. This is the promise of the Old Testament. This is what consumed the thoughts of the prophets. This is what Ezekiel and all of his really odd, messy images is getting toward. This is the promise of Joel. I will pour out My Spirit upon all flesh. Israel had seen what it was for someone to have God's Spirit. God's Spirit had rested upon kings. God's Spirit had rested upon prophets. God's Spirit had rested upon Samuel. God's Spirit had rested upon Elijah and Elisha. They had seen it out there. That's what a holy person looks like. That Is someone with God's Spirit. But Joel the prophet spoke the word of God and said, I will pour out my Spirit, not on a select few, but upon all flesh. And they'll dream dreams and they'll have visions. This is what all of the New Testament is about. The Gospels are about God coming, taking up residence among us. The Epistles are about how does God now live in the church. The whole of the Christian Gospel. The whole of it is about the presence of a holy God In and among his people. It is what he has promised, and that promise has been fulfilled in Pentecost. Perhaps our prayers might relate to that. God, make me holy. God, purify my interactions with others. God, help me to forget about myself and my influence and my power and what I want, restoring the kingdom of Israel to me. Lord, help me to live with a pure heart and a holy love. And that can't be done merely internally. That means our lives begin to take on a new form. That we begin to do life differently. Because we are becoming His holy people. As we draw to the end of the service, sometimes I feel like it it needs uh, not to be said because it's just assumed. But if you'd like to come and pray, then you may do so. If you'd like to just sit quietly and pray, then I invite you to do that as well. Let's pray.